Section 17, Part 3 of Chapter 2 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackston. Book 1. Chapter 2. Part 3. Section 3. We are next to examine the laws and customs relating to Parliament, thus united together and considered as one aggregate body. The power and jurisdiction of Parliament, says Sir Edward Cook, is so transcendent and absolute that it cannot be confined, either for causes or persons, within any bounds. And of this high court, he adds, it may be truly said, quote, Si antiquitatem spectis est vetustissima, si dignitatem est honoratissima, si juridictionem est capacissima. It hath sovereign and uncontrollable authority in making, confirming, enlarging, restraining, abrogating, repealing, reviving, and expounding of laws concerning matters of all possible denominations, ecclesiastical or temporal, civil, military, maritime, or criminal, this being the place where that absolute despotic power, which must in all governments reside somewhere, is entrusted by the constitution of these kingdoms. All mischiefs and grievances, operations and remedies that transcend the ordinary course of the laws are within the reach of this extraordinary tribunal. It can regulate, or new model, the succession to the crown, as was done in the reign of Henry VIII and William III. It can alter the established religion of the land, as was done in a variety of instances, in the reigns of King Henry VIII and his three children. It can change and create afresh even the constitution of the kingdom and parliament themselves, as was done by the Act of Union and the several statutes for triennial and septennial elections. It can, in short, do everything that is not naturally impossible, and therefore some have not scrupled to call its power, by a figure rather too bold, the omnipotence of Parliament. True it is, that what they do, no authority upon earth can undo, so that it is a matter most essential to the liberties of this kingdom, that such members be delegated to this important trust, as are most eminent for their probity, their fortitude, and their knowledge. For it was a known apothegm of the great Lord Treasurer Burley, quote, that England could never be ruined but by a Parliament, end quote. And as Sir Matthew Hale observes, this being the highest and greatest court, over which none other can have jurisdiction in the kingdom, if by any means a misgovernment should any way fall upon it. The subjects of this kingdom are left without all manner of remedy. To the same purpose, the President Montesquieu, though I trust too hastily, presages that as Rome, Sparta, and Carthage have lost their liberty and perished, so the constitution of England will in time lose its liberty, will perish. It will perish whenever the legislative power shall become more corrupt than the executive. It must be owned that Mr. Locke and other theoretical writers have held that, quote, there remains still inherent in the people a supreme power to remove or alter the legislative, when they find the legislative act 
contrary to the trust reposed in them, for when such trust is abused, it is thereby forfeited, and divorced to those who gave it. End quote. But however just this conclusion may be in theory, we cannot adopt it, nor argue from it, under any dispensation of government at present actually existing. For this devolution of power to the people at large includes in it a dissolution of the whole form of government established by that people, reduces all the members to their original state of equality, and, by annihilating the sovereign power, repeals all positive laws whatsoever before enacted. No human laws will therefore suppose a case which at once must destroy all law, and compel men to build afresh upon a new foundation. Nor will they make provision for so desperate an event as must render all legal provisions ineffectual. So long, therefore, as the English Constitution lasts, we may venture to affirm that the power of Parliament is absolute and without control. In order to prevent the mischiefs that might arise, by placing this extensive authority in the hands that are either incapable or else improper to manage it, it is provided that no one shall sit or vote in their house of Parliament unless he be twenty-one years of age. This is expressly declared by Statute 7 and 8, William III, Chapter 25, with regard to the House of Commons, though a minor was incapacitated before from sitting in either house by the law and custom of Parliament. To prevent crude innovations in religion and government, it is enacted by Statute 30, Charles II, Statute 2, and 1, George I, Chapter 13, that no member shall vote or sit in either house till he hath in the presence of the house taking the oaths of allegiance, supremacy, and abjuration, and subscribed and repeated the declaration against transubstantiation, and invocation of saints, and the sacrifice of the mass. To prevent dangers that may arise to the kingdom from foreign attachments, connections, or dependencies, it is enacted by the twelfth and thirteenth, William the Third, Chapter Two, that no alien born out of the dominions of the crown of Great Britain, even though he be naturalized, shall be capable of being a member of either house of Parliament. Further, as every court of justice has laws and customs for its direction, some the civil and canon, some the common law, others their own peculiar laws and customs, so the high court of Parliament hath also its own peculiar law called the Lex et Consuetudo Parliamenti, a law which Sir Edward Cook observes is, quote, ab omnibus querenda a multis inorata a pausis cognita, end quote. It will not, therefore, be expected that we should enter into the examination of this law with any degree of minuteness, since, as the same learned author assures us, it is much better to be learned out of the rules of Parliament and other records, and by precedence, and continual experience, than can be expressed by any one man. It will be sufficient to observe that the whole of the law and custom of Parliament has its original from this one maxim, quote, that whatever matter arises concerning either house of Parliament ought to be examined, discussed, and adjudged in that house to which it relates, and not elsewhere, End quote. Hence, for instance, 
the lords will not suffer the commons to interfere in settling a claim of peerage. The commons will not allow the lords to judge the election of a burgess, nor will either house permit the courts of law to examine the merits of either case. But the maxims upon which they proceed, together with their method of proceeding, rest entirely in the breast of the Parliament itself, and are not defined and ascertained by any particular stated laws. The privileges of Parliament are likewise very large and indefinite, which has occasioned an observation that the principal privilege of Parliament consisted in this, that its privileges were not certainly known to any but the Parliament itself, and, therefore, when in 31 Henry the Sixth, the House of Lords propounded a question to the judges touching the privilege of Parliament, the Chief Justice, in the name of his brethren, declared, quote, that they ought not to make answer to that question, for it hath not been used aforetime that the justices should in any wise determine the privileges of the High Court of Parliament, for it is so high and mighty in his nature that it may make law, and that which is law, it may make no law. And the determination and knowledge of that privilege belongs to the Lords of Parliament, and not to the Justices. End quote. Privilege of Parliament was principally established in order to protect its members not only from being molested by their fellow subjects, but also more especially from being oppressed by the power of the Crown. If, therefore, all the privileges of Parliament were once to be set down and ascertained, and no privilege to be allowed but what was so defined and determined, it were easy for the executive power to devise some new case, not within the line of privilege and under pretense thereof, to harass any refractory member and violate the freedom of Parliament. The dignity and independence of the two houses are therefore in great measure preserved by keeping their privileges indefinite. Some, however, of the more notorious privileges of the members of either house are privilege of speech, of person, of their domestics, and of their lands and goods. As to the first, privilege of speech, it is declared by the statute 1, William and Mary, statute 2, chapter 2, as one of the liberties of the people, quote, that the freedom of speech and debates and proceedings in Parliament ought not to be impeached or questioned in any court or place out of Parliament. And this freedom of speech is particularly demanded of the King in person, by the Speaker of the House of Commons, at the opening of every new Parliament. So likewise are the other privileges of person, servants, lands, and goods, which are immunities as ancient as Edward the Confessor, in whose laws we find this precept, quote, At synodos venientibus, sive sumoniti sint, sive persequid agendum abulerint, sit summa pax. End quote. And so too, in the old Gothic constitutions, quote, Extenditur haec pax et securitas at quatuordesim dies, convocato regni senatu. This includes not only privilege from illegal violence, but also from legal arrests and seizures by process from the courts of law. To assault by violence a member of either house or his menial servants is a high contempt of Parliament. 
and there punished with the utmost severity. It has likewise peculiar penalties annexed to it in the courts of law, by the statutes 5 Henry IV, chapter 6, and 11 Henry VI, chapter 11. Neither can any member of either house be arrested and taken into custody, nor served with any process of the court of law, nor can his menial servants be arrested, nor can any entry be made on his lands, nor can his goods be distrained or seized, without a breach of the privilege of Parliament. These privileges, however, which derogate from the common law, being only indulged to prevent the members being diverted from the public business, endure no longer than the session of Parliament, save only as to the freedom of his person, which in a peer is for ever sacred and inviolable, and in a commoner for forty days after every prorogation, and forty days before the next appointed meeting, which is now in effect as long as the Parliament subsists, it seldom being prorogued for more than fourscore days at a time. But this privilege of person does not hold in crimes of such public malignity as treason, felony, or breach of the peace, or rather, perhaps, in such crimes for which surety of the peace may be required. As to all other privileges which obstruct the ordinary course of justice, they cease by the statutes 12, William III, Chapter 3, and 11, George II, Chapter 24, immediately after the dissolution or prorogation of the Parliament, or adjournment of the houses for above a fortnight, and during these recesses a peer or member of the House of Commons may be sued like an ordinary subject, and in consequence of such suits may be dispossessed of his lands and goods. In these cases a king has also his prerogative. He may sue for his debts, though not arrest the person of a member, during the sitting of Parliament, and by statute 2 and 3, and chapter 18, a member may be sued during the sitting of Parliament for any misdemeanor or breach of trust in a public office. Likewise, for the benefit of commerce, it is provided by statute 4, George III, chapter 33, that any trader, having privilege of Parliament, may be served with legal process for any just debt to the amount of a hundred pounds, and unless he makes satisfaction within two months, it shall be deemed an act of bankruptcy, and that commissions of bankruptcy may be issued against such privileged traders, in like manner as against any other. These are the general heads of the laws and customs relating to Parliament, considered as one aggregate body. We will next proceed. 2. Section 4. The laws and customs relating to the House of Lords in particular. These, if we exclude their judicial capacity, which will be more properly treated of in the third and fourth books of these commentaries, will take up but little of our time. One very ancient privilege is that declared by the Charter of the Forest, confirmed in Parliament, 9. Henry III, viz., that every lord spiritual or temporal, summoned to Parliament, and passing through the king's forests, may, both in going and returning, kill one or two of the king's deer without warrant, in view of the forester, if he be present, or on blowing a horn, if he be absent, that he may not seem to take the king's venison by stealth. In the next place, they have a right to be attended, 
and constantly are, by the judges of the court of the king's bench, and common pleas, and such of the barons of the exchequer, as are of the degree of the coif, or have been made surgeons at law, as likewise by the masters of the court of chancery, for their advice in point of law, and for the greater dignity of their proceedings. The secretaries of state, the attorney and solicitor-general, and the rest of the king's learned counsel, being surgeons, were also used to attend the house of peers, and have to this day their regular writs of summons issued out at the beginning of every parliament. But, as many of them have of late years being members of the House of Commons, their attendance is fallen into disuse. Another privilege is that every peer, by license obtained from the king, may make another lord of Parliament his proxy to vote for him in his absence, a privilege which a member of the other house can by no means have, as he is himself but a proxy for a multitude of other people. Each peer has also a right, by leave of the house, when a vote passes contrary to his sentiments, to enter his dissent on the journals of the house, with the reasons for such dissent, which is usually styled his protest. All bills, likewise, that may in their consequences any way affect the rights of the peerage, are by the custom of Parliament to have their first rise and beginning in the House of Peers, and to suffer no changes or amendments in the House of Commons. There is also one statute peculiarly relative to the House of Lords, 6 Anne, Chapter 23, which regulates the election of the sixteen representative peers of North Britain, in consequence of the twenty-second and twenty-third articles of the Union, and for that purpose prescribes the oaths, etc., to be taken by the electors, directs the mode of balloting, prohibits the peer electing from being attended in an unusual manner, and expressly provides that no other matter shall be treated of in that assembly, save only the election, on pain of incurring a premunire. End of section 17